Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcast and give us any constructive feedback. From the National, Friday the 18th of March 2022. From the news section, BBC Question Time. Suella Braverman confronted over Tory links to Russian oligarchs by Gregor Young. Tory Minister Suella Braverman raged as she dodged questions and security advice around the appointment of Russian media mogul Evgeny Lebedev to the House of Lords. Braverman, the Attorney General for England and Wales, was appearing on the BBC's Question Time when she was challenged over Boris Johnson's decision to ignore MI6 advice and grant Lebedev a peerage. Lebedev, a close friend of the Prime Minister, was given a seat in the, Lord, in the Lords despite the intelligence bosses having concerns about him as long as a decade ago. The topic came up on the BBC after Braverman was challenged on the UK's policy on allowing Ukrainian refugees into the country. The top Tory was asked why refugees could not come to the UK first and then complete security checks. A safety first, paperwork second approach also promoted by the First Minister. Braverman responded, I'm sorry, but that's not in line with the security advice that we have. It's really important that we do carry out these checks before they get here, because if they don't pass the standard, it's very hard to remove people who are here illegally. After she finished, Labour MP and Shadow Health Secretary West Streeting said, Well, you didn't worry about security advice when Boris Johnson put Lebedeb of Siberia in the House of Lords, did you? A visibly annoyed Braverman asked Streeting to back the accusation up with cogent evidence. He responded, I think we need a straight answer from Boris Johnson about the advice he was given. We know Dominic Cummings said he was given security advice. We know Boris Johnson didn't like the advice and put him in the House of Lords anyway. You're a senior law officer. Can you tell us categorically that Boris Johnson wasn't given security advice about Lord Lebedev? Braverman avoided the question, instead accusing Streeting of casting aspirations. It's very easy to get carried away, given the heightened tensions and conflict at the moment, to throw accusations around about people who are innocent, law-abiding Russian citizens, she said. Streeting said he agreed, but again asked what the security advice on Lebedev had been. Again, Braverman avoided the question. Journalist and editor Max Hastings then interjected to say, the Conservative Party's relationship with Russian oligarchs is a badge of shame. The Tory minister then claimed the UK had introduced unprecedented sanctions on Russian oligarchs. Streeting cut in, but slow enough that Roman Abramovich could fly his planes out of the country. And that article was by Gregor Young. From The National. Friday the 18th of March 2022. From the news section. RT licence to broadcast in UK revoked by Ofcom with immediate effect by Xander Richards. Broadcasting regulator Ofcom has suspended RT's licence in the UK with immediate effect. 
The watchdog said it did not consider the Russian state-backed channel fit and proper to hold a UK licence and cannot be satisfied that it can be a responsible broadcaster. The decision comes amid 29 ongoing investigations by Ofcom into the due impartiality of RT's news and current affairs coverage of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Ofcom said, We consider the volume and potentially serious nature of the issues raised within such a short period to be of great concern, especially given RT's compliance history, which has seen the channel fine £200,000 for previous due impartiality breaches. The watchdog said it had made the decision on the basis that we do not consider RT's licence, ANOTV Novosti, fit and proper to hold a UK broadcast licence. It added that a separate investigation into ANOTV Novosti had been launched. Ofcom said its probe into RT had considered its relationship with the Russian state and recognised it as a source of its funding. It also considered new Russian laws which Ofcom said prevent any independent journalism that departs from the Russian state's own news narrative. Journalists in Russia have been told to only report news from official government sources and Latvian-based Russian news website Medusa reported that the words attack, invasion and war had been blacklisted. Ofcom said, We consider that given these constraints, it appears impossible for RT to comply with the due impartiality rules of our broadcasting code in the circumstances. We recognise that RT is currently off air in the UK as a result of sanctions imposed by the EU since the invasion of Ukraine commenced, it added. Melanie Dawes, Ofcom's chief executive, said, Freedom of expression is something we guard fiercely in this country and the bar for action on broadcasters is, is rightly set very high. Following an independent regularity process, we have today found that RT is not fit and proper to hold a licence in the UK. As a result, we have revoked RT's UK broadcasting licence. RT Deputy Editor-in-Chief Anna Bilkina claimed Ofcom's decision had shown the UK public and the regulatory community internationally that despite a well-constructed facade of independence, it is nothing more than a tool of government bending to its media-suppressed will. Belkina further claimed Ofcom had ignored RT's completely clean record of four consecutive years, saying the channel was completely unassociated with the situation in Ukraine. The news comes after Tory Culture Sector Secretary Nadine Doris called for RT to never again be able to broadcast poisonous propaganda into British homes. She added, it is my absolute position that we will not stop until we are persuaded every organisation, based in the UK or not, that it is a wrong thing to do to stream Russian propaganda into British homes. Lucy Powell, Labour's Shadows Culture Secretary, said it was about time for Ofcom's move. The news comes after former Minister Alex Salmond confirmed he had broadcast on the Russian channel for the final time following the Putin regime's invasion of Ukraine. And that was a report by Xander Richards. From the National, Friday the 18th of March 2022, from the news section. South Lanarkshire family returned from holiday to find son has gone to fight in Ukraine. By Laura Webster. The parents of a Scottish garage owner said they found out their son is fighting in Ukraine after he failed to meet them at the airport on their return from holiday. Adam Ennis, 35, from Bigger, South Lanarkshire, 
has reportedly left Scotland to join 50 men from around the world to defend the streets of Kiev. His father Brian, who was in Thailand with his wife and daughter for three months, told BBC Scotland it was a shock to discover their son had gone to fight. Adam was due to pick us up at the airport, he said, but his friend picked us up instead. His friend wasn't going to say anything until Adam spoke to us, so we weren't aware until he phoned us that evening. He was already in Ukraine at a camp. Adam Ennis has no military experience, but his father said he knows how to handle weapons and is a, a crack shot. Ennis said he is worried for his son's safety, but also proud of his decision to go and support Ukraine. As any parent, you never want to see a loved one in any danger, and it has caused us a lot of anxious nights, he said. We are worried, but he has done it for the right reasons. He hasn't done it for glory, he's not silly. He is a level-headed person, and when he got there he said he had no regrets. First Minister Nicola Sturgeon has said that any Scot wishing to fight should think carefully about what we can do to support Ukraine that is actually helpful and meaningful. She has previously said she will not encourage people with no military experience or training to go and fight. UK Defence Secretary Ben Wallace has also urged Britons not to travel to Ukraine to join the fighting, as he said the very dangerous situation could lead to them being killed. He said there were better ways to contribute to the security of Ukraine. And that was an article by Laura Webster. You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 18th of March 2022. Comment. David Frost's hard-right stance is shared by the Scottish Tories, by Michael Russell. The writer H.G. Wells once described human history as a race between education and catastrophe, a remark that remains as worryingly true in our age as it was in his. Obviously, if we are to learn anything useful from our past, we have to get the basic facts right, but were you trying to do so, my advice would be not to rely on a modern Tory for guidance and on this past week's evidence, particularly not Douglas Ross or Lord David Frost. Ross, undertaking the political contortions required for him to welcome Johnson to Scotland, having categorically and completely disowned him just weeks ago, claimed that changing the Prime Minister during an international crisis was always dangerously irresponsible and therefore something a Tory would never do. Unlike the Tories, who brought down Chamberlain in May 1940 as the Germans started to invade France, or the Tories who helped to remove Asquith in 1916 in the depths of the First World War. Not forgetting, of course, the Tories that dumped Margaret Thatcher during the crucial build-up to the Gulf War when UK troops were actually on the ground in the Middle East, or the Tories who heaved a sigh of relief when Eden resigned as Prime Minister because of ill health, whilst the Suez Crisis was still not concluded. Ross's strange position appears to be that having a proven liar, who is at the very least under suspicion for having been far too close to Russian money and influence, is, in some unexplained way, better to have in the pivotal and crucial role of Prime Minister in times of peril than anyone else in his or any other party. Yet this is mere amateur revisionism compared to what was in a lecture given by Lord Frost, the former Brexit negotiator, in Zurich on Tuesday. Back in October 2017, I was also fortunate enough to deliver a lecture at Zurich University and spent a wonderful autumn day in what is a beautiful city. I hope, however, that what I said bore more relation to the facts of Brexit than Frost's contribution. 
Frost contended that we shouldn't judge Brexit on short-term economic grounds, but rather by what he called freedoms. He also blamed the EU for the bitterness that characterised the negotiations and risibly asserted that Brexiteers never wished to see the EU collapse. Virtually all of that, and indeed most of the rest of the speech, can be directly contradicted by historic fact and political reality, but Frost's tone is as revealing as the content. It reeks of British exceptionalism and of the UK patronisingly doing a favour to the remaining 27 EU members. This is particularly evident in the section on the Northern Ireland Protocol, in which he suggests compromising on youth travel and UK involvement in some European defence activities in order to get a deal, as if these are generous concessions instead of being things that the UK now needs, Frost himself having completely messed up the negotiations for them first time round. There is more of the same in his analysis of what the Tories must offer at a future UK general election, which seems to be even more Brexit-related chaos, including a return to the hoary old chestnut of trading on WTO terms, as if farming and fishing haven't suffered enough. Yet Frost's bizarre assertions go even further. When dealing grandly with what he calls the behaviour of the West in recent years, in connection with the current crisis in Ukraine, he suddenly alleges, and I quote, that in appeasing Greta Thunberg, we very nearly gave a free pass to Vladimir Putin. I think most people will accept that it is extraordinary, offensive and just plain wrong to compare a crusading Swedish schoolgirl to a murderous dictator in this way. What it reveals, however, is that Frost, who at the time of his resignation deliberately aligned himself with those who opposed lockdown restrictions, and he made that point again in Zurich, and having attempted to rewrite his own lamentable Brexit history, is now spinning off into the right-wing political fringe, articulating an extremist's charter. On a whole range of issues, including the characterisation of the universally accepted global environmental threat as some sort of trendy woke concern that should be ignored. Yet scarily, what Frost is smugly declaring from the hard right is actually, in terms of oil and gas, the same case that is being put by the Scottish Tories. Let's just, their siren voices urge, open up more wells and we can return to the life we want to lead. Lord Frost's Brexit delusions are plain to see, not least because the suffering and loss that they have wrought lies all around us. Clearing up that mess will be a hard job, but taking the road to Scottish independence within the EU is the way to tackle it. Delusions about the climate are harder not to crack, particularly in the midst of an emerging energy panic. We must continue to assert that a continuing addiction to fossil fuels and environmental degradation will kill our planet and ourselves if we don't recognise the urgency of the matter and act accordingly. The political and military crisis we face should actually spur us to even greater efforts in devising and implementing the policies which must green and clean where we live. That is the Manhattan Project of our time, one that will not lead not to mass destruction, but to the recreation of a world in which those who come after us can live in harmony with their surroundings, and hopefully in peace with their neighbours. History has been rewritten far too often by people like Lord Frost and Douglas Ross, entirely in their own interests. In that race between education and catastrophe, the future of the human race now depends on ensuring that education wins. That means facing up to facts, not rejecting them. This article was by Michael Russell.
You're listening to The National as published on Friday the 18th of March 2022. Comment. The real Scottish politics. Mainstream unionist parties are being dragged right. By Wee Ginger Doug. There is increasingly little distinction between the established parties traditionally opposed to Scottish independence and the moon-howling extremists of way out there Anglo-British nationalism. In response to the normalisation of Scottish independence as a mainstream political idea, which regularly attracts the support of half the respondents in Scottish opinion polling, Labour, and above all, the Conservatives, have doubled down on their support for British nationalism, which, despite all evidence to the contrary, they continue to insist is not nationalist at all, and find ever more spurious reasons for denying the fundamental political and democratic truths about the current Scottish Parliament. Those truths are that this Scottish Parliament has the largest pro-independence majority of any Scottish Parliament since the establishment of devolution, and that majority was elected by the voters of Scotland in order to deliver on an explicit, unambiguous and unconditional commitment to hold a second independence referendum within the term of this Parliament. We perhaps should not be surprised, although we should still be shocked and angry, that when avowedly mainstream democratic parties espouse a position which is fundamentally undemocratic, those parties start to become attractive to extremist individuals who more properly belong on the margins of democratic discourse and who are usually to be found hurling abuse on social media or projecting their own right-wing intolerance onto independent supporters on Twitter or in the cesspits that pass for the comments section of anti-independence newspapers. However, this starts to become particularly concerning when the support of these extremist individuals begins to drag the policies of supposedly mainstream parties even further to the intolerant right and when individuals espousing extremist views are deemed to be suitable as candidates for mainstream parties. There is sadly now evidence that this is happening in the Labour Party in Scotland, which has recently seen fit to choose a former Grand Master of the Orange Order as a candidate in this year's local elections. However, there is even more evidence that this process of what we could term urbanisation, after the authoritarian right-wing Hungarian leader Viktor Orban, has become deeply entrenched in the Conservative Party, both in Scotland and in the UK as a whole. There are now a number of Conservative candidates in May's local elections who have previously been involved in UKIP, appear to follow racist or far-right accounts on social media, have been accused of making racist comments or have been responsible for trolling abuse on social media. There are now far too many such instances of questionable candidates for the Conservatives to plausibly claim that they have merely slipped through vetting procedures. We are forced to conclude that the Conservatives are selecting these individuals as candidates because they really do reflect the views and values of the modern Conservative Party. Further evidence comes from the fact that the Conservatives in Scotland are now stealing the policies and language of George Galloway's uber-unionist frothing-at-the-mouth all-for-unity party, which was so successful at promoting unity that it couldn't even maintain unity within its own ranks, foundering on the jagged rocks of Galloway's ego and differences of opinion about Putin's invasion of Ukraine. We have now learned 
that the Scottish Tories have stolen wholesale one of All for Unity's flagship policies, a supposed Open the Books bill, which according to Douglas Ross would strengthen financial transparency and government accountability. The bill would require the Scottish Government to publish a quarterly update of the budget and monthly data on the uptake and payouts from each fund it operates. It would also require the Scottish Government to publish a value-for-money statement ahead of taking ownership of any private enterprise. This is breathtakingly hypocritical of the Conservatives, as their bill would only apply to the Scottish Government, not to party political funding, or to the British Government. In office, the Conservatives have presided over rampant cronyism, corruption and handing lucrative government contracts to the families and friends of senior Conservatives. The Conservative Party is funded by a flow of dirty Russian money, secret donations from wealthy donors and dark money from unknown sources. We might ask Douglas Ross why, if he thinks financial transparency is such a great idea, he is not also demanding it of his Westminster colleagues in that parliament where he sits as an MP. I suspect we will not get an answer. This article was by We Ginger Doug. This article is from the Glasgow Times, date 18th March 2022, from the Opinion section. All in a night's work for our driver John, by the secret Glasgow taxi driver. We are all in dire need of as much good news as we can get right now. So it was magic to read a positive story about one of my fellow drivers from the weekend. His name is John Lundy and he was out on duty on Saturday night doing his bit to help people get home safely. We all know there's a real challenge with the amount of taxi drivers at peak times right now, not only in Glasgow by the way, but it's only right to champion the ones who are out there keeping the city ticking over. Anyway, John had a hire at the Double Tree in the city centre in the early hours, or as many of us still like to call it, the old thistle. He picked up a group who had clearly had a ball at a big charity event in the hotel night on a St Patrick's Day fundraising, as it happens. While John was sitting there with his passengers ready to take them home, when a poor wee soul wandered up to him all alone and asked, Can you help me? Without hesitation and with the support of his passengers, John immediately sought to do just that. This person was not from Glasgow, was completely lost, had no money and no battery on her phone. Not a great place to be in the small hours. She had lost her pals who were staying at the travel lodge. The name of the hotel was all that our John needed to know. John, with the permission of his patient and understanding passengers, very quickly got the individual back to her pals, even charging her phone for her on the way. And that's the only thing he charged. It goes without saying, not a penny was asked for on this occasion. So the girl was safely returned to her pals and the original passengers were taken home and then John got on with his next hire, working on until the streets were cleared. John Lundy, thank you for representing the city and the trade with such class. I know for a fact these things happen most nights. You just don't always hear of them. So, while you may curse at the shortage of drivers at peak times, 
let's be grateful for the ones we do have. Stay safe. That article was by The Secret Glasgow Taxi Driver. This article is from The National, date 21st March 2022, from the News section. Best and Worst Places in Scotland for Electric Cars by Sean Bell The best place in Scotland to own an electric car is the Orkney Islands, while East Dumbartonshire, East Renfrewshire and West Lothian rank as the worst, according to a new study. Findings from car usership experts carguide.co.uk based on analysis of the number of electric car charging points in Scottish local authorities, has revealed that the Orkney Islands have the highest number of charging points per 100,000 people. With 40 total charging points in an area with a population of 22,000, Orkney, which in 2014 developed a strategy for low-carbon integrated transport, is the most accessible place in Scotland to own an electric car. At present, the islands have around 300 electric cars, though the Orkney Renewable Energy Forum has predicted this will reach 1,000 by 2025. Stirling came in second, with a total of 119 charging points for a population of around 94,000, while East Lothian came in third with 128 for nearly 108,000 local residents. The worst area in Scotland to own an electric car, however, has been revealed as Eastern Bartonshire, with only 25 charging points for a population of over 108,000. East Renfrewshire and West Lothian have been judged as second and third worst, with comparable population sizes but less than 30 charging points apiece. Carguide.co.uk founder Ollie Astley commented, Whilst we at Carguide.co.uk believe that motorists getting into electric vehicles is the best way forward due to the benefits to the environment, the UK's charging infrastructure still has a way to go. Scotland as a whole currently has more electric vehicles per head than the rest of the UK and 2,600 charging points around the country as of this month. The Scottish Government has committed to £60 million plan to ensure that there are 30,000 such points across the nation by 2030, by which time it is hoped that the sale of new petrol and diesel vehicles will be banned, while government predictions suggest that there may be between 500,000 and 1 million electric vehicles on Scotland's roads. That article was by Sean Bell. This article is from The National, date 21st March 2022, from the Politics section. Greens say no to building new nuclear power stations. By Steph Braun. The Greens have hit back at claims the Scottish Government should rethink its opposition to building new nuclear power stations. Greg Hans, the UK Energy Minister, insisted in an interview this morning he hoped the war in Ukraine had given Scotland a pretext to get behind nuclear power and be part of its development. 
He went on to say the UK had a really strong safety regime and laws were coming into place which would reduce its cost. But Scottish Green Economy spokesperson Maggie Chapman said using nuclear power would be a backward step that would leave a toxic legacy for centuries. There is nothing secure about nuclear power, she said. It is neither safe nor reliable, and as Hinkley Point shows, it is very expensive. Customers will have to pay for it on top of the current cost of living crisis. Especially now, the last thing we need is a backward step towards nuclear industry, which would cost hundreds of millions of pounds while leaving a toxic legacy for centuries, and it will take years to get on stream. Scotland has amazing potential in clean, renewable energy, but it requires the political will to meet that. With Greens in government, Scotland is paving the way for expansion. But while energy policy is reserved, we've seen vast subsidies channelled into fossil fuels and nuclear by successive UK governments. Mr Hans said, Nuclear is going to be a big part of our energy future. I think the Russian invasion of Ukraine should hopefully have given them, the Scottish Government, a pretext for a rethink. There is never a better time to bring more nuclear power to Scotland. Prime Minister Boris Johnson is due to meet with leaders of the nuclear industry today to discuss expansion ahead of a new UK energy security strategy coming into place either later this week or early next. The Scottish Government has made clear it opposed to building new nuclear power stations because it believes it represents poor value for customers. On its website it says, It is clear from the contract awarded by the UK Government to Hinkley Point C nuclear station in Somerset, which will result in energy consumers subsidising its operation until 2060. That article was by Steph Brown. This article is from The National, date 21st March 2022, from the News section. Scottish mental health made worse by pandemic debt worries. By Jane MacLeod. More than three quarters of Scots whose lives were blighted by debt during the coronavirus pandemic say their mental health suffered, a new poll has found. Some 77% of adults in debt or at risk of debt since COVID-19 ripped through the country have said their money issues have negatively impacted on their mental health, according to a survey for Citizens Advice Scotland. The organisation's financial health spokesman Sarah Jane Dunn said that the vicious link between financial pressures and mental well-being is something we should all understand. Money worries and mental health issues often go hand in hand with emotional stress often being the cause and consequence of financial stress, she said. In a YouGov survey of 1,001 Scots, 197 said they had taken on more debt or the risk of debt since the pandemic started. Of those who answered, 30% said it had affected them a great deal and 47 said it had impacted them a fair amount. Dunn said, We want people to understand they aren't alone in dealing with their debt or the impact on their mental well-being that comes with it. 
hundreds of thousands of people facing the stigma of debt and the added stigma of poor mental health. Cass's Debt Happens campaign aims to let people know they are not alone in facing debt and can get advice through its network. That article was by Jane McLeod. From the National, Monday the 21st of March 2022, from the comment section, Kirsty Strickland, anger at bendy bananas is not akin to Ukraine war. Reporting from journalists in Ukraine over the last few weeks has been moving. The accounts of the destruction and death inflicted upon Ukraine has been impossible to look away from. But it is the photographs and videos that have been the most affecting. The image of a pregnant woman being stretched out of a bombed maternity hospital in Mariupol was horrifying. All the more so when we learned that she, both she and her baby died shortly after it was taken. The videos of brave young men saying goodbye to their families for what could be the last time force you to imagine yourself in their place. Even as a mental exercise, it is horrifying to contemplate. What would those embraces feel like as you watch your family leave while you stay and fight for your country's freedom? The strength it must take to untangle the, in the tiny arms of your child from around your neck and tell them it's time for them to go somewhere safe without you by their side is breathtaking. A lot has been written about the bravery and resilience of the Ukrainian people. It is truly humbling. I mention this knowing that the vast majority of people will view their brave fight against Putin's onslaught in much the same way. I also mention it because, yet again, Boris Johnson has shown his self-interest makes him incapable of seeing the world as others do. His comments at the Conservative Party Spring Conference in Blackpool at the weekend were deeply troubling. They were more than just a few, just offensive because they highlighted the disconnect between our leading politician and the people he was elected to serve. While ordinary people across the UK are doing what they can to help the people of Ukraine, organising, donating, signing up to sanctuary to refugees, the Prime Minister only thinks of himself. By comparing the heroism of the people of Ukraine in fighting Russian aggression and the UK's decision to leave the EU, he reminds us though we do not need it, that he is unfit to lead. He said that the people of the UK, like the Ukrainians, had the instinct to choose freedom and he offered confidence that the vote to leave the UK is a recent example of this. He says this as though we don't remember what the EU referendum campaign was all about. It goes without saying that the months of arguing about bendy bananas and dog whistle scaremongering about immigration is incomparable to the harrowing plight of Ukrainians under siege from bombs and bullets. In an interview yesterday, Chancellor Richie Sunak sought to defend Boris Johnson. I don't think the Prime Minister was making a direct comparison between those two things. Clearly they're not directly analogous. He was making some general observations about people's desire for freedom, he said. And what has become a familiar feature of Boris Johnson's Premiership, his words are condemned from people across the political spectrum. Labour's Rachel Reeves said it was shameless for the Prime Minister to draw a parallel between the vote to leave the EUK and the people of Ukraine who are fighting for their lives. Conservative MP Tobias Elwood tweeted, Comparing the Ukrainian people's fight against Putin's tyranny to the British people voting for Brexit damages the standard of statecraft we were beginning to exhibit. Ian Blackford said the Prime Minister's words were crass and distasteful 
The Lib Dem leader Sir Ed Davey described Boris Johnson as a national embarrassment. To compare a referendum to women and children fleeing Putin's bombs is an insult to every Ukrainian. He is no Churchill, he is Basil Fawlty, he said. Despite the fact that Boris Johnson is applying his usual woeful standard of care and sensitivity to this crisis, his allies still claim that the Prime Minister is having a good war. They demand that opposition MPs, as well as those on his own side who have been critical of our party gate, put politics aside and give the Prime Minister their backing in order to show Putin that the UK is united. But this week has shown that Boris Johnson is unwilling to do the same. No matter the crisis, be it the pandemic, the cost of living crisis or the war in Ukraine, the Prime Minister is motivated only by self-interest. No issue is bigger than his ego. That's why it wasn't at all surprising to see him make the ridiculous suggestion that if Labour were in power they would raise the white flag to Putin, as he did to an audience of Tory activists last week. True to form, Boris Johnson has decided to seek political and personal advantage from the war in Ukraine. It's a shoddy way for any politician to behave, let alone the Prime Minister of this country. His deluded MPs still cling on to the hope that this will be the moment Boris Johnson finally rises to the challenge and takes his job seriously. As his comments last week showed, there's just a wish that is designed never to be fulfilled. And that was a comment piece by Kirsty Strickland. From The National, Tuesday the 22nd of March 2022, from the politics section, Labour candidate quits over comments about party MPs' faith. This story is by Steph Braun, multimedia political journalist. A Labour candidate has been axed after mocking a party MP over her Catholic faith. Vanessa Shand, who also accused the SNP of wanting to impose a Catholic monarchy, has withdrawn as a council candidate in Perth and Kinross following a daily record investigation into her comments. It came as the SNP were urged by Labour to sack a candidate of their own after sectarian social media comments were uncovered. The record reported that former Labour candidate Shand, in a tweet prompted by MP Rebecca Long-Bailey praising Jeremy Corbyn over the Northern Ireland peace process, wrote, says the daughter of Northern Ireland Catholic parents. She also tweeted in 2015, So that's the SNP's game? They want to replace the UK monarchy with a Catholic monarchy? Well, I never. On top of this, she backed a former soldier who was charged with murdering civilians in the Bloody Sunday Massacre in 1972. Shan used to have a Twitter logo stating, I stand with Soldier F, which refers to the paratrooper who faced murder charges over the killing of James Ray and William McKinney, plus several other counts of attempted murder. The charges were dropped after Public Prosecution Service concluded there was no longer a reasonable prospect of key evidence against him being ruled admissible in court. But the Southland Inquiry, set up to get to the bottom of the tragic events, stated there was no doubt Soldier F had shot father of six Paddy Doherty, who was unarmed. Thirteen civil rights demonstrators were killed in the massacre when the British Army Parachute Regiment opened fire. A member of Scottish Labour's government executive made a complaint about Shan's Twitter activity in 2020. It stated, The Savile report demonstrated comprehensively that those killed at Bloody Sunday were wholly innocent and that the Parachute Regiment was responsible for their unlawful killings. Perhaps more worryingly still, 
She has demonstrated a pattern of prejudicial behaviour towards those of the Catholic faith. These tweets will cause grave offence to Catholic supporters and potential supporters of the Labour Party. The SNP welcomed the news she has been removed as a local ele- election candidate, but has urged Scottish Labour to reflect on how she ended up as one in the first place. A party spokesperson said, It's clear Scottish Labour is desperate to find local council candidates, but it should not mean principles are an afterthought. Meanwhile, the SNP were urged by Labour to sack candidate Siobhan Tolland after it was revealed she had shouted abuse at the Pope and described 9-11 as an inside job. The Courier reported the Dundee candidate, who is a member of the party's ruling National Executive Committee, made offensive comments on social media dating back to 2010. In one, she wrote that she had travelled to Edinburgh to see Pope Benedict XVI and stated she might have gone a wee bit too far when she called him a C, asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. Toland added, Siobhan thinks everyone should protest against the Pope for his cover-up of sex abuse crimes and is going to the demo on Lothian Road, outside Usher Hall, on Thursday. Five days later, she then wrote her throat was seriously shouting at the Pope. The candidate for the Lockheed Ward also told Facebook friends that the CIA and the FBI were behind the 2001 attacks on the Twin Towers in New York. She has now deleted the Facebook posts, Facebook posts and apologised. SNP bosses have been urged to remove Tollins as a candidate and as a member of the party's National Executive Committee. Labour said the SNP needed to urgently reconsider whether this individual is fit for candidate for public office. The SNP said the comments were regrettable and reflect a difficult period in her life when she, which she has long since moved on from. And that was an article by Steph Braun. From the National, Tuesday the 22nd of March 2022, from the news section, Nationality and Borders Bill could see Ukraine refugees being put in jail for years by Xander Richards, political reporter. The Tory government is seeking to impose a new law that could see refugees fleeing the war in Ukraine jailed for up to four years. In a Commons debate on Tuesday, MPs will discuss measures in Home Secretary's Priti Patel's Nationality and Borders Bill, which have seen the UK government accused of trying to rip up its international obligations. The Tories are aimed to bring into law a distinction between types of refugees depending on how they arrive in the UK. Those who come through unofficial routes, such as crossing the channel in small boats, could face having their asylum claim immediately ruled out as long as four years and as long as four years behind bars. This would apply to all refugees, including those fleeing the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Such a measure would be in direct contravention of the UN's 1951 Refugee Convention, Article 31 of which states shall not impose penalties on asylum seekers according to how they arrived in the country. A change to the Borders Bill made by the House of Lords says that nothing in Patel's new legislation could contravene that 1951 accord. However, the Tory government will strip that change away with ministers claiming that the new bill does not breach international law. Both Labour and DSNP accused the London government of seeking to rip up its obligations. SNP Home Affairs spokesperson Stuart MacDonald MP said, The Anti-Refugee Nationality and Borders Bill is nothing less than a full frontal assault on the UK's international obligations, 
including the Refugee Convention. While humanitarian crises continues across the world, the Tories are essentially ripping up a convention that is there to provide sanctuary to those fleeing unimaginable horrors. If passed, the bill will see many people seeking safety criminalised, with an offence punishable with up to four years in prison. Whether they have fled the Taliban in Afghanistan, sought refuge from the wars in Syria, or are fleeing the illegal war Russia is pursuing in Ukraine, it will cause even more people to take life-threatening journeys because safe legal routes are being cut back and it will see people seeking refuge being warehoused in appalling conditions similar to Napier barracks or offshore thousands of miles away, replicating an Australian system that saw horrendous human rights abuses at exorbitant cost. The SNP has opposed this bill every step of the way and we will again today. Last June, the High Court ruled that the Home Office had broken the law by housing hundreds of asylum seekers in Napier Barracks, despite Public Health England, PHE, warnings that it was unsuitable. The Guardian reported that a briefing note sent to MPs said the government would seek to push ahead with the idea of Australian-style offshore processing centres and block amendments from the Lords, which looked to make it easier for families to be reunited. Labour Civet Cooper the Shadow Home Secretary said, Countries like Poland, Romania and Moldova are doing all, all doing their bit under the Refugee Convention to help Ukraine. Yet, instead of supporting that vital international collaboration, Conservative ministers are trying to rip the Convention up. It is unbelievable and deeply shameful that at a time like this, Priti Patel is still pushing ahead with plans that could criminalise desperate Ukrainians who arrived in the UK with the wrong papers. I mean vulnerable refugees who have fled war or persecution could end up with prison sentences, she said. I hope the Conservative MP is joining us in telling the government to think again. Britain is better than this. A Home Office spokesperson said, The UK has a long history of supporting those fleeing conflict and our resettlement programmes have provided safe and legal routes for tens of thousands of people to start new lives in the UK. Through the Nationality and Borders Bill, we will fix our broken asylum system, helping those in genuine need while tackling people's smuggling gangs. The Lords' vote in the Nationality and Borders Bill are disappointing, but we will not be deterred from delivering what the people of this country voted for. We stand by the principle of safe and legal routes. People should not place their lives in the hands of people smugglers. And that article is by Xander Richards. From The National, Thursday the 24th of March 2022, from the sports section. Kozi Mizuno details huge Celtic moment which developed Japan connection by David Irvin. Kyogo Furuhashi, Ryo Hatate, Daisen Maeda and Yosuke Idekuchi's move to Celtic has reinstated the huge Japanese interest in Parkhead. There has been a connection between the club and country since legend Shunsuke Nakamura's time at Parkhead and the new Japanese heroes at Celtic have brought around heightened interest from their homeland in Scottish football again. Ange Postecoglou's connection with Japan was obvious, having managed in the country before joining Celtic, and that only further adds to the developing connection between Celtic and Japan. Forgotten Celtic man Koki Mizuno was another player whose arrival at Celtic sparked keen interest from his home nation, 
especially as he lined up alongside Nakamura. And despite only scoring one goal during his two-year stint in Glasgow, Mizono has revealed his strike against Falkirk, assisted by Nakamura, was a huge moment in developing the link between Celtic and Japan. He told the Celtic View, Celtic were on TV every week because Nakamura was always of interest. After I joined the club, Celtic got even more attention because there were two Japanese players together. Then when I scored against Falkirk with Nakamura assisting me, it was huge. Now there are four Japanese players at the club and the attention on Celtic here is more than in my day. Nakamura was big for me as I wanted to follow in his steps. I hope Kyogo Furuhashi, Reo Hatate, Daisen Maeda and Yosuke Idaguchi will be creating good steps for the next Japanese players who want to play for Celtic. That article was by David Irvin from The National, Thursday the 24th of March 2022, from the Sports Section. Rangers' response to Club 1872 was childish and clubs should take note of Dave King PR masterstroke. It just won't go away. Weeks after Rangers announced that the club would be competed in the Sydney Super Cup in November, a friendly tournament featuring Celtic that will include the first old firm derby played outside of Glasgow in the history of the fixture, the issue is no closer to being resolved. Supporters are angry, and understandably so. Being billed as their rival's support act on the Ange Postecoglou homecoming tour of Australia was an idea that was always going to go down like a lead balloon, Yet, mystifyingly, the Ibrox board charged full stream ahead into a disaster of their own making. Scathing criticism after scathing criticism of the half-baked notion flooded social media sites and fan forums as punters lined up to make their feelings about the friendly abundantly clear. Given the fact Celtic have made a habit of distancing themselves from the old firm moniker since 2012, Rangers fans are quite right to ask why their club are so keen to get into bed with them. What is beyond doubt is that the Ibrox executive who made the call underestimated the strength of feeling from supporters. Chance of you can stick your effing friendly up your arse have become a regular ditty amongst fans on match days and the protests have even spilled onto the park. The launching of tennis balls and ticker tape onto the surface at Dens Park on Sunday was a step too far in my eyes, but even if it was an overreaction, the act itself was telling, particularly at the start of the second half, when Giovanni van Bronckhurst's men were a goal down and looked to seize the momentum in the game. Such demonstrations are disruptive and ultimately counterproductive in my eyes, but it was an interesting decision to make. With their teams losing crucial ground in the title race in a must-win feature, some away fans chose to stage their protest, even if it meant disturbing the game, which could affect the team's chances of winning. For me, this shows just how much this issue means to the Rangers fan base, which makes the developments over the last few days all the more unfathomable. Club 1872 fired the starting pistol on Tuesday morning as the fans group, who own around 4.6% of the Ibrox Club shares, making them the eighth largest shareholder, and have an agreement in place with former chairman Dave King to purchase his remaining shares, 
released a statement where they castigated board members for the policy and practices. Commercial Director James Bisgrove, Managing Director Stuart Robertson and Head of Communications David Graham were accused of bearing an extremely unhealthy disdain for the Rangers' support, with the Club 1872 statement adding that inaccurate information has regularly been disseminated through the Club's own public statements, briefings to fan media and highly selective leaks to a small group of individuals within the Rangers' support in order to advance the trio's interests and not those of the club. The Sydney Super Cup wasn't mentioned directly, but you don't have to reside at 221B Baker Street to hazard a guess at the disdain Club 1872 are referring to. The angry reaction to the friendly has proven to be the straw that broke the camel's back for many Rangers supporters, the catalyst for the recent disruption of the park. Club 1872 statement raised legitimate concerns over the club's commercial and media strategy. The ticketing system at the club is widely regarded to be a mess. Many fans aren't convinced by the MyJers membership scheme and the club's championing of an FNT, like any FNT, is a little murky, to say the least. Fans can make their peace with these while things are going well, but when the mood shifts, they become very important indeed. I'm not a Rangers fan, but I thought these were valid, legitimate questions that are worthy of a fair response. Instead, it was met with outright disdain. After a hiatus, where declarations were disconcertingly level-headed for the most part, Scotland's statement masters responded with a superb return to form for fans of petty and bad-natured, but above all, tone-deaf club communications. It started badly when they called an important shareholder a rump of supporters and got worse from there. The statement said that the timing was terrible, given the club are involved in a fight for silverware on three fronts. The concerns raised were brushed aside as mere jealousy. It is lost on nobody that those intent on creating maximum disruption are those who have either enjoyed or craved a role within our club. And the whole sorry episode was dubbed a propaganda war. It was a childish response. Rather than dealing with any of the points raised by Club 1872, Rangers instead resorted to finger-pointing and name-calling. The executives at the club must have been aware that they're not the most popular people in Govan at the moment, due to the Sydney Super Cup debacle, and the fact that they chose to respond to a group of supporters so aggressively is jaw-dropping. It's a spectacular misreading of the room, and one that only got worse yesterday. The financial boost provided by the Sydney Super Cup is its one saving grace and makes withdrawal difficult, but Dave King announced he would front the cost to pull out of the poorly conceived tournament. It was, in my view, a PR masterstroke from King, who is affiliated to Club 1872. He comes across as though he is in touch with the needs of supporters and is willing to put his hand in his own pocket to fulfil them in order to do what is in the best interests of the club and its fan base. Rangers' executive team should take note. The issues raised by Club 1872 won't go away by themselves and are going to have to be addressed sooner or later. If they're not, supporter dissatisfaction will only grow and their ire will be aimed squarely at the Ibrox boardroom. This article was by James Kearney. From the National, 
of Thursday the 24th of March 2022 from the comment section Rishi Sunak gave us an austerity budget with one eye on number 10 by Gordon McIntyre Kemp at Believe in Scotland. This is a budget with a few baubles for the right-wing press, but Sunak's spring budget is clearly an austerity budget. Inflation has hit 6.2%, the highest it has been for nearly 40 years, and it's just getting started with the UK government's own modelling, OBR, suggesting it will hit 7.4% this year. However, 7.4% will require a fairly rapid peace deal in Ukraine that leads to the ending of sanctions and rapid falls in the costs of oil and gas. I've been predicting 10% inflation this year. I see no reason to be more optimistic. The cost of living crisis was in full effect due to the impact of Brexit, covid camouflaged the worst of Brexit and added some severe short-term pain and now the Conservatives are trying to blame it all on the Ukraine invasion. Bad news upon bad news for sure, but the foundations of the crisis were built on the back of Brexit. Living standards are also set to fall faster than at any time since the mid-1950s, with the OBR saying real household disposable incomes per person would fall by 2.2% in 2022-23, as earnings from work fail to keep pace with soaring inflation. The Treasury had predicted 6% GDP growth this year, expecting a post-Covid bounce back. However, it has now been downgraded to 3.6%. The Chancellor had to look at protecting the needs of the people, but instead he has protected corporations by rejecting windfall taxes and the wealthy by not increasing taxes on higher earners. Again, he abandons pensioners by not using this statement to reinstate and backdate the brutal real terms cut in pensions when he scrapped the triple lock this year. And finally, the basic income tax rate is to be cut from 20% to 19% before the end of this Westminster Parliament in 2024. Jam tomorrow and a blatant admission that he will only help when there is an election looming, one that he hopes will make him Prime Minister. This article was by Gordon McIntyre Kemp. Reported from the National on the 22nd of March 2022, from the Culture section, Crofter's Land Buyout inspires Trad Musician's new album by Nansport. A crofter's buyer of a Highland estate has inspired a rousing trad album. We Have Won the Land celebrates the unprecedented success of the crofters in buying back 21,000 acres of land on the west coast of Sutherland from a Swedish land speculator in 1993. The efforts of the Assaint Crofters Trust to buy the North Lochinver estate inspired many other communities to pursue similar projects and eventually own the land on which they live and work. 
The album is the creation of Ascent-born Rory Matheson and Arcadian fiddle, mandolin and guitar player Graham Rory, a founding member of the three-time MG Alba Scots Trad Music Award-nominated band NOS. The Crofters buyout of the North Lochinver estate means a lot to me because my family supported the campaign and were heavily involved in the process from the beginning, said Matheson. It's a really powerful story and an important part of Highland history that I was very inspired by. Matheson and Rory have previously worked together as session musicians and are both former finalists of the BBC Radio Scotland Young Musician of the Year, but this is the first time they've composed together. A piano and keyboard player, Matheson has toured throughout Europe, the US and Australia, despite only being a recent graduate from the Royal Conservatoire of Scotland, RCS. He is a founding member of Glasgow Band Trip and can also be seen touring with fiddle-led quartet Farah. Rory is also an RCS alumni and was recently nominated for Original Work of the Year at the Scots Trad Music Awards for his solo album, The Arcadians of Hudson Bay. The pair are joined by an impressive team of musicians on the album, including Anna Massey on guitar, Charlie Stewart on bass, Craig Baxter on bodron, Fraser Stone on drums and percussion, Kristen Harvey on fiddle, Tiernan Curl on flutes and whistles, and James Graham on vocals. We Have Won the Land will be available to stream on all major platforms and purchase on April 22nd. That article was by Nan Sport. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of March. Ferguson Marine buyout was the right thing to do, Scottish Government insists. An article written by Hamish Morrison, political reporter. The Scottish Government has defended its decision to take over a shipyard after a new report found there continue to be unresolved major problems at the site. Two ferries due to be built at a Clyde yard are now four years late and the budget has swollen to around two and a half times its original price. Scottish ministers awarded two contracts to build vessels 801 and 802 intended to serve islands on the west coast to Ferguson Marine in Port Glasgow, despite Caledonian Maritime Assets Limited raising serious concerns about the firm. The report found there was insufficient evidence as to why the contract was awarded to the company, which was later nationalised by the Scottish Government with the intention of securing the delivery of the ships and protecting jobs at the yard. Auditor-General Stephen Boyle said the failure to deliver the two ferries exposes a multitude of failings. He said the process, which has been ongoing since 2015, had shown a lack of transparent decision-making, a lack of project oversight and no clear understanding of what significant sums of public money have achieved. And crucially, communities still don't have the lifeline ferries they were promised years ago. The two ferries were due to be sailing by 2018, but have been delayed following the collapse of Ferguson Marine and a contractual dispute between the ferry operator and the firm. Kate Forbes, the Finance Secretary, has insisted the Scottish Government saved 300 jobs by taking the yard into public ownership. She said, The decision taken to safeguard the future of Ferguson Marine was the right one. Not only did our efforts save the last commercial shipyard on the Clyde from closure, we directly rescued more than 300 jobs and ensured that two vessels, which are vital for our island communities, will be delivered. There's no doubt that getting the vessels completed has been extremely challenging, but let me be absolutely clear, these vessels must be delivered as soon as possible. There can be no ifs or buts when it comes to lifeline services for our island communities. I've made that expectation absolutely clear to the Ferguson Marine leadership and board, and will continue to work closely with the yard to ensure the vessels enter service as soon as possible. 
The procurement process for vessels 801 and 802 was undertaken thoroughly, in good faith and following appropriate due diligence, and suggestions to the contrary are wrong. Ferguson Marine continues to evolve, and with the appointment of a new permanent CEO earlier this year, we're entering a new era of shipbuilding on the Clyde. Significant progress is being made, and Ferguson Marine is back to being a serious contender for future vessel contracts. An article written by Hamish Morrison. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of March. Fireworks bill could lead to a black market, industry figures claim. An article written by Gregor Young. The fireworks bill will lead to a black market, with more injuries and deaths, industry figures have told MSPs. Groups representing fireworks and pyrotechnics businesses spoke to Holyrood's Justice Committee on Wednesday. The committee is considering the Scottish Government's fireworks bill, which would impose a number of restrictions on the sale and use of fireworks. These include special training and a licensing scheme for those buying fireworks and limits on the times and areas they can be used in. Fraser Stevenson, the Vice Chairman of the British Fireworks Association, said the businesses his organisation represents imported most fireworks into the UK. Saying only a small number of people misused fireworks, he asked the committee, why does the bill appear to target the majority of consumers who are using fireworks in an appropriate way? He continued, greater restrictions would not be appropriate due to the real risk of creating a black market. The association feels this bill will be the biggest contributor to the creation of a black market. It does nothing to address the issue of misuse. Instead, it specifically targets law-abiding Scots. Saying the demand for fireworks would instead be met by organised criminals, he added, it will not improve safety. It will result in more injuries, not less. It will lead to deaths. Andy Hubble, chairman of the British Pyrotechnists Association, said his organisation also had concerns about the creation of a black market. He told the MSPs, Never before have I felt so passionately that a mistake has been made. Norman Donald, owner of the Aberdeen retailer NJE Fireworks, said the bill was completely backward. He said, If we create a black market, we're definitely going to put the public in danger. Injuries are going to be vast, and as Fraser says, this will probably lead to deaths. Last week, representatives from the Scottish Police Federation and the Fire Service spoke to the committee in favour of the bill. They raised concerns about fireworks being used to attack emergency service workers, with the Federation saying that this was a growing problem. An article written by Gregor Young. The National News on Wednesday the 23rd of March. LGBT Scots more likely to have alcohol issues but face barriers for help, says a Glasgow study. An article written by Jane MacLeod, journalist. People from the LGBTQ plus community are more likely to have problems with alcohol than others, but experience major barriers in accessing alcohol services, according to new research. The Glasgow Caledonian University study on LGBTQ plus people's experiences of alcohol services investigated the views of both service users and providers. Respondents told of their concerns that excessive drinking was normalised among LGBTQ plus people and that there was a lack of alcohol-free spaces for that community in Scotland. They also identified specific barriers to accessing alcohol services, including concerns about judgement and discrimination, services not being perceived as LGBTQ plus friendly and a lack of discussion of sexuality and gender from service providers. 
Experts are now calling for action to overcome these barriers. Professor Carol Emsley, who led the study, said, We know that LGBTQ plus communities are at higher risk of alcohol-related harm, so it's important to learn about their experiences of alcohol services in Scotland. Our respondents reported their drinking was often a response to discrimination, family rejection or hiding their LGBTQ plus identity, but that service providers rarely explored how sexuality or gender identity might impact on alcohol use. Our report recommends that all staff working in alcohol services should receive LGBTQ plus diversity training and services should check they're reaching the LGBTQ plus community and tailoring their services appropriately. At a broader level, alcohol-free spaces for LGBTQ plus people where drinking heavily is not the norm and increased public acceptance of LGBTQ plus issues would reduce alcohol harm in this community. The study was funded by Scottish Health Action on Alcohol Problems. Some service providers questioned as part of the research reported feeling uncomfortable in discussing gender and sexuality, although they felt that, with training, their confidence in discussing these issues would improve. David Barber of the Glasgow LGBTQI Substance Use Partnership said, Disproportionate numbers of LGBT plus people find themselves using alcohol to self-medicate for higher levels of stress, anxiety and depression. Combined with the fact that alcohol plays such a dominant role in safe LGBT plus social spaces, it's crucial that alcohol services take steps to understand the scale of this problem and begin to address it. An article written by Jane McLeod. The National Politics on Wednesday the 23rd of March. Support for independence ahead in poll showing majority believe union will be gone in a decade. A front-page article written by Judith Duffy. Six out of ten Scots believe the UK will not exist in its current form in ten years' time, according to a new poll which also puts backing for independence in the lead. The latest survey, carried out by Ipsos, found support for the yes vote is at 50%, compared to 43% for no, with 4% of voters remaining undecided. Nearly half of people north of the border also think the union will not exist in five years' time. Across the UK overall, however, the proportion predicting the demise of the union within the next decade has fallen slightly compared with early 2021, from 56% to 50% in February this year. Meanwhile, the poll also found the Scottish Government continues to attract more praise than the UK Government for its handling of the pandemic, both north of the border and across the rest of the UK. However, it highlighted that people in Scotland are the most pessimistic in the UK about the economic prospects in the coming months. The Ipsos UK Knowledge Panel surveyed more than 4,000 people across the UK at the beginning of February. Scots remain more likely than those in England and Wales to say the UK will not exist in its current form for much longer, the report said. As many as 61% of Scots say the UK will not exist in its current form in 10 years' time, compared with 50% across the UK as a whole. 46% of Scots think it will not exist in five years' time, compared with 33% across the UK as a whole. When it comes to views across the UK on whether Scotland should vote for independence, just over half of people in England and Wales say that they would prefer it to stay part of the Union. However, the report notes views in Northern Ireland are less clear, with 42% saying they want Scotland to stay, but 29% backing Scotland to leave the UK. It also notes the Scottish Government continues to attract more praise than the UK Government for its handling of the pandemic, 
both among those in Scotland and across the rest of the UK. Views of the Scottish Government are surprisingly most favourable in Scotland, where 59% say the Scottish Government has handled the pandemic well, compared with just 22% who say the same for the UK Government. The survey also found the slightly more people in England think the Scottish Government has handled the pandemic well, at 44% compared to 38%. Across the UK, just 15% think the general economic condition of the UK will improve in the next 12 months, while 67% say it will get worse. Expectations are even more pessimistic in Scotland, where 73% expect the UK's economy to get worse in the next year. Only 9% of people north of the border think Scotland's economy will improve, and 68% that it will get worse. When it comes to how quickly it will recover from the pandemic, the most common view in Scotland was that it will recover around the same rate as the UK, at 43%. Just 15% believe it will bounce back more quickly. Emily Gray, Managing Director of Ipsos Scotland, said... Scots are pessimistic about the country's economic prospects, which shows the public are well aware of the challenges facing the Scottish Government in delivering on its recently published National Strategy for Economic Transformation. Given wider pressures on the cost of living and the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, it comes as no surprise that people are feeling uncertain about the short-term future of the economy and are divided over whether Scotland's economic prospects are likely to be any different from the UK's as a whole. Meanwhile, although three in five Scots expect the demise of the UK within 10 years, those in England and Wales would still prefer Scotland to vote no in any second referendum. An article written by Judith Duffy. Reported from The National on the 23rd of March 2022, from the Culture section, Tory MSP uses conference speech to launch personal attack on Scots Minister by Xander Richards. Government minister has accused a Tory MSP of speaking childishly after he used a platform at the Scots Conservative Conference to launch a personal attack. Graham Simpson, a Tory representative from the Central Scotland list, was speaking at his party's conference in Aberdeen on Saturday as he went on the offensive. Simpson told conference that his role as Shadow Transport Minister involved dealing with two ministers, Transport Minister Jenny Gilruth and Active Travel Minister Patrick Harvey. While he did not offer criticism of Gilruth, the Tory MSP took the opportunity to attack his Green counterpart. It's incredible to say he's a government minister, but he is, Simpson said, saying the minister should stop being a protester, which is what he is. Patrick Harvey is a very thin-skinned individual. He does not take criticism well, Simpson went on. The Tory MSP further criticised Harvey for, having, for not having worn a helmet while riding his bicycle late last year, an issue which he also brought up in Hollywood last week. Responding at the time, Harvey said, I, like every cyclist, make a decision for myself about whether a helmet is something that I wish to wear. And like every other cyclist, I have angry drivers yelling out of the window, wear a helmet at me, when they should be paying attention to their responsibilities on the road. I deeply regret that Mr Simpson thinks it is appropriate to bring that very same energy into the chamber. Asked what he thought of Simpson's latest attack, the Green Minister told the National that Simpson routinely engaged in childish name-calling. He said... Most MSPs, whether I agree with them or not, take the privilege of speaking in the chambers of Scotland's Parliament seriously. Mr Simpson routinely uses it for nothing more than childish name-calling. When he decides to offer criticism with any substance to it, then he'll take it seriously. As for protest, I know the UK government is trying to outlaw it at the moment, but protest is a vital part of democracy and I'll never stop protesting against Tory policies and the harm they do. Harvey was seemingly referring to the Tories' police crime sentencing and courts bill. 
Concerns have been raised about measures in the proposed Act, with more than 250,000 people signing a petition saying it represents a dismantling of our civil liberties. In a debate held in the wake of that petition, Labour MP Kerry McCarthy said the bill gave police powers to decide what is acceptable, what is troublesome, what is annoying and what is too noisy. Green MP Caroline Lucas claimed the bill would have made Greta Thunberg sitting alone with a placard a potential criminal. The Tories deny the bill erodes the public's right to protest, saying it will enable the police to manage disruptive protests more effectively. The article was by Xander Richards. The National, March 24. Avoid A and E, Scots advised, as hospitals almost at capacity in largest health board. Report by Steph Braun. Scotland's largest health board has admitted its hospitals are almost at capacity, with people being warned the pandemic is still as serious as it gets. The number of people in hospital with the virus reached a new record high yesterday for the third day running. NHS Greater Glasgow and Clyde's Deputy Medical Director, Dr Scott Davidson, is now urging people to only attend accident and emergency if the condition is very urgent or life-threatening. The latest figures show 2,257 people were in hospital on Tuesday with recently confirmed COVID-19, which is a rise of 36 on the previous day. Of these, 25 were in intensive care. Data also showed there were a further 39 deaths connected with coronavirus and almost 12,500 fresh cases in the past 24 hours. A total of 10.6% of these were reinfections. Davidson said, It is two years since the first national lockdown and we are still very much in the grip of COVID. Our hospitals are almost at capacity and our A and E's are extremely busy. This is as serious as it gets. Our teams are under significant pressure and we need the public to show support by only attending A and E if your condition is very urgent or life-threatening. A total of 4,451,641 people have received their first coronavirus vaccine. 4,176,494 have received their second and 3,479,940 have received a third dose or booster. But Davison urged people to wear a face mask if they do attend hospital as COVID is rife within our communities. Health Secretary Humza Yusuf said on social media the NHS was facing its most challenging weeks since the start of the pandemic and he tweeted I cannot thank our incredible health and social care staff enough for their heroic efforts over the last two years. Those efforts continue as our health service faces its most challenging weeks since the pandemic began. Davidson thanked NHS staff for their incredible work 
over the last two years under considerable pressure and added, their commitment to high-quality patient-centred care throughout the health emergency has been second to none. Lorna Burse, the chair of NHS Tayside, also paid tribute to staff there for their amazing achievements. She said, The commitment and dedication shown by teams across hospitals, community care, GPs and volunteering has been extraordinary. The team Tayside Ethos are working together to find new ways of providing care, delivering solutions and innovating be it through new services or equipment or treatment, has shone through. Report by Steph Braun. Worded from the National on the 24th of March 2022 from the Culture Section. Festival celebrating Catalan culture to take place across Scotland this spring by Beth Whitelaw. This year, the UK's largest festival of Catalan arts, literature and culture is taking place in Scotland and across the UK between March and June. The Institute Raman Lul, the public organisation promoting Catalan language and culture internationally, will present Spotlight on Catalan Culture beginning on March 29th. The lineup encompasses an extensive programme inspired by the literature, language, arts, history and creativity of Catalan and will feature author talk, circus and theatre performances, poetry readings, art exhibitions, history talks, film screenings, jazz concerts, digital projects, bridging literature and film, translation workshops and publishing masterclasses for university students. 25 events will be held across the country from Edinburgh to Exeter, taking place in independent bookshops to concert halls and lecture theatres. As a public institution devoted to extending the reach of Catalan language and culture, the Institute Ramon Lull provides aid to authors, translators, publishers and literary agents to ensure that Catalan literature is translated, published and read abroad. The festival is designed to introduce the general public to the richness of this Catalan culture and heritage and showcase the offering of artists, authors and performers from Catalan-speaking territories. Pierre Almeida, director of the Institute Ramon Lull, said The Spotlight programme is an answer to many years of an enriching exchange between the Catalan and British culture landscapes. It is a great opportunity for Catalan culture to be featured with all its potential and strength in the context of international cultural dialogue. Adrian Witten, OBE, Chief Executive of Film London and the British Film Commission said, We're delighted to partner with Institute Raman Lull and the Centre de Cultura Contemporana de Barcelona on this exciting project. Strengthening creative collaboration between Film London and IRL, the Spotlight programme connects talent from both regions to tell bold and diverse stories through the medium of moving image. The six filmmakers we've commissioned are rising stars with urgent, distinctive voices. We hope to build on this partnership in the future and look forward to showcasing our filmmakers' work with audiences throughout the UK and beyond. For more information, visit the Spotlight website. The programme is curated in collaboration with literary organisations including Literature Across Frontiers, Wales Literature Exchange, UNESCO Cities of Literature Exeter and Manchester, Mark's Memorial Library, European Poetry Festival, Independent Bookshops, Brick Lane Bookshop, Burley Fisher Books, Bookbag Bookshop and Foyles Charing Cross and publishers Granta, Fitzcarraldo and other stories, Fum de Stampa among others. The article was by Beth Whitelaw, recorded from the National on the 24th of March 2022.
from the culture section. Shameless and Coronation Street star Maggie Fox dies in sudden accident by Martha Wilson. Coronation Street and shameless actress Maggie Fox has died after a sudden accident. The news was announced in a Facebook post by Fox's comedy partner Sue Riding. In the post, Riding wrote, It is with great sadness that I have to announce the death of Maggie Fox, my comedic partner of 40 years and co-artistic director of lip service. Maggie passed away yesterday with her family around her. We are all still in a state of shock as this was very sudden following an accident. As you can imagine, I am completely heartbroken. Further details surrounding Fox's death are unknown. Fox appeared at Ruth Audsley in Coronation Street in 2001 and also starred in Shameless and the Foresight Saga. She also performed in Radio 4 sketch show Lip Service, who she wrote with writing. The two were scheduled to go on a nationwide tour this week. That article was by Martha Wilson. And that was this week's The National Podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.